You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where the only fastball special you'll find on this show is today's opening song. Sometimes I feel like I am drunk behind the wheel. It may roll Give it a spin See if you can somehow factor in You know there's always more than one way To say exactly what you mean to say Was I out of my head or was I out of my mind? How could I have ever been so blind? I was waiting for an indication It was hard to find Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Eagle, and what I do on this show is cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. And this time out, we're only going to be covering a single book, Green Lantern number 152, which follows up on the issue, well, obviously follows up on the issue prior to it, where we found at the end that Jenny had suddenly been stricken by an intense fear of something. Her powers have gone all all out of control. She's making weird constructs. She's threatening the city. There's madness and chaos going on. And only Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, and former Green Lantern, Alan Scott, are there to take care of it. What does it have to do with Jenny and Kyle? What does it have to do with the story? What does it have to do with Infinity Inc.? All of that will be found out very soon. Plus, I'll be also getting to your emails and playing a couple of podcast promos before I get to the coverage of the book. So stay tuned after the promos, and we'll get right in to our coverage of Green Lantern number 152. Then it's time you spoke up to Hey Obi-Wan, your lightsaber's showing. Take a nap, Pete. Live long in Subject Frodo. I'm sick of being a goddamn scarecrow. I'll give this podcast thing a try. Two! Freaks! Later. I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick your ass. Wow, you've gone from very fine to near mint. What a man. Size matters not. Two true freaks.lipson.com Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, 
the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman. The Schuster Herald Podcast. The Cares Herald Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel. A John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts. Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bride, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And we are back. But before we get into coverage of the comic, let's go ahead and open up the Just One of the Guys email bag, see what kind of cards and letters or emails you wonderful folks have sent to the show. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter comes this time out from my good friend Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive, as well as a co-host of the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, both of which you can find over at Two True Freaks. And he writes in with the title I'm sorry, Pre-Crisis, Guy Gardner in Convergence. He says, Sean, take a look at the solicit for Convergence Green Lantern Corps number one. Guy is back, at least for this many, Luke. And I wrote back to Luke saying, yeah, I'm looking forward to the Convergence story. I don't know if I'll be picking up the entirety of it, because at either $2.99 or $3.99 a pop and 40 issues, that's that's a lot of money. But I'll probably be picking up the Green Lantern issue. Uh, I'll probably pick up the one that has uh, Parallax in it. The core issue sounds interesting. And some of the tangent ones. I think there's a one with a Wally West Flash that deals with a tangent character, who I've got to assume is the Flash. There's a 
uh, what is this? Not Doom Patrol. It's a, a Teen Titans issue that's written by Marv Wolfman that features the Doom Patrol, the Tangent Universe. And there's also a Justice League uh, comic that deals with the Detroit Justice League, including Elongated Man, Vibe, Vixen, I think Steel's in it. But it looks like a really, really interesting series, even though we don't know exactly what's going on with it, because DC's keeping their lips pretty tightly sealed about what convergence is actually supposed to mean. But thank you, Luke, for once again writing in. Our next email comes from my good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis, and Scott writes in with the title of his email, Away From Home, saying, Hi, Sean. Happy New Year, which tells you it's been a while since I've gotten this email. Thank you again, Scott, for being so patient. He says, I hope you had a great time over the holidays, and I have some comments on the three Green Lantern issues that I would like to pass along. Number 137, he said it was a good issue about Terry Berg coming out of the closet. Good point about the cover, because Terry must know that Kyle is Green Lantern, and that is him ripping up the picture of Kyle and Jade. Regarding, regarding Andre, I agree that the switch of him being portrayed as a gay guy in the previous issue to being straight in this issue was a slap in our face by Winnick. I don't feel bad about being tricked into that one. This was the first time I've heard of Jon Stewart having a gay brother, and I did some research and I couldn't find anything to confirm this. I'm pretty sure this is another Winnickism. You make a good point that it would be interesting to read the letters page in a few issues. Yeah, I, I kind of did just some brief Googling to find if there was anything at all about Jon Stewart having a gay brother prior to this issue. And yeah, I think it was just basically Winnick writing that in there in order to progress the storyline or to give Jon something that, to give Jon a relatability to the character of Terry. It doesn't diminish the character or enhance the character of Jon in any way. It just is another thing that essentially goes to show that writers don't tend to have a specific a specific story Bible, for lack of a better word, on how to treat the character of Jon Stewart. Jon Stewart is essentially malleable. When he first came out, he was supposedly an architect, and then he was a... When Jeff Johns got hold of him, he was in the military, and he had uh, Marines training and stuff like that. So Jon is one of these characters who can basically be whoever the writer wants him to be. Going on, he says, Green Lantern 138, uh, is this another part one of something? I guess I have to start getting used to this writing for the trade. The art by Eaglesham was excellent, and the cover by Banks was fantastic, and Kyle confirms his Irish roots by referencing Belfast on page 9. On page 11, Jenny tells Minister Ilias that he's she's not a Green Lantern, but she doesn't explain why. What is she then? Uh, I don't know. I don't exactly remember what went on with that. He said, great work of Eagle Sham of Topless Jade on page 12. Uh-huh, that, that's always nice. And uh, we really had to have 43 kids die in the terrorism attack. This is a really powerful issue, but it's way too close to real life for me. If I wanted to read about kids getting blown to pieces, I would have picked up the daily newspaper, if you know what I mean. I agree with your hunch that Minister Ilias is probably up to, or was probably set up to be the guy that did it, and you mentioned that you're disappointed by the writing for the trade, and I agree with you. You also mentioned that you're also withholding judgment on the Winnick run. I'm doing the same, but I kind of know where my judgment is going right now, and it's definitely not in the right direction. Well, I hope your opinion has changed. I've, I think that was a rough spot. The Tendak storyline in the Green Lantern book has been kind of a sticking point for me because it just was so heavy-handed. It's an obvious allegory to what was going on in the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and 
it felt like a slap in the face. I I really don't like to see I don't mind allegories for current day events in the stories, but this one just felt too on the nose and too specific. It wasn't quite preachy in the way that I think Judd Winnick could have been, but it did skirt the line pretty closely. But finally, going on to Greenlander 139, he said, this was a terrible issue of uh, Winnick's take on the Middle East conflict. It's not enjoyable at all seeing a mother hold her dead girl. If it, It's too real world, if you know what I mean. I can't believe Kyle and Jenny cut and run in two pages at the end of the issue. Couldn't they get, like, Martian Manhunter to come to the planet and kick some ass? I have a feeling that Winnick really doesn't get Kyle, the Kyle character that Mars created at all. Do we really need to end the issue with the same image of, image of the mother holding her dead girl? Well, I guess we were wrong with thinking Ilias was the guy who did it, because it turns out his whole family is shot to death, too. I did not enjoy these last two issues at all. Thanks, Sean, and have a great week. Well, thankfully, Scott, I think those issues were kind of a bump in the road. The Tendax story was referenced a little bit more at the beginning of the Ion storyline, but it's now gone away to the wayside as well. And I'm wondering if Fallout, because of Kyle as Ion coming at Tendax and saying, I'm stopping all fighting here and it's not going to go on, what has happened now that he's not Ion and can't be doing that? Is this going to cause even more violence? I hope that they eventually go back to that in the uh, in the Winnick run and show what Kyle's interactions with the characters or interactions with that planet and uh, what consequences of him doing that uh, have befallen the planet, because I think that would be an interesting thing to take a look at. However, you know, initially the initial story of the planet of Tendax really just wasn't that interesting. But again, Scott, thank you for writing in. I'm going to read a I'm going to read one more email from Luke Giaconetti, uh, since his first one was sort of short. Uh, this one is written about uh, the uh, Greenlander number 147, and it's entitled, Good Thing FX Had That MASH Marathon On While Winnick Wrote GL 147, which kind of makes sense. He says, Sean, man, you are dead on. Greenlander 147 really does play a lot like Hawkeye's storyline from Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. This was especially glaring given the time this issue was released, 2002, when MASH was on near-constant rotation on FX. I know this because my friend Rhett and I probably wasted more time watching MASH in college than on anything else. So the ending is telegraphed from a mile away, even if you hadn't mentioned Goodbye Farewell Amen at the top of the episode. It's a criticism, it's a criticism I hear leveled at Winnick sometimes frequently, that he's an obvious writer, and in this case is at least, it seems very justified. At least Winnick didn't give didn't have Radu show up and lose his hearing after an explosion while trying to help people get out of the coffee shop. Uh, that would have been a bit too on the nose. And then Radu could have uh, gone on to star in after Green Lantern with uh, with Jenny and maybe uh, oh uh, Terry could have been in there as well, and that would have been horrible. Anyway, he says I think what Winnick is doing here, as hacking this is, is trying to create that definitive John Stewart story that you referred to. Whether or not he succeeds, at least, he was doing something new with the character and trying to give him more solid motivation. I don't think this is a strong personality as John would stick until his turn on the Justice League cartoon, and even that was a divorce from pretty much everything which had come before from that point. But them's the breaks, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. The Justice League cartoon 
really did center him more as a military person than Jeff Johns did. I was wrong in saying that earlier. I liked what the Just League cartoon, and I think the Just League cartoon was probably one of the things that defined John the most as a character. And that's a credit to Bruce Tim and Paul Dini and all the creators who were behind that show. I think that was probably, aside from the initial outing with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, them creating John Stewart, that we've gotten for John. I mean, his character has gone through so many changes through the O'Neill run, through or through the uh, Steve Englehart run, into Gerard Jones and Mosaic and all that, and then coming back with Ron Mars and uh, even now into Jed Winnick, that he's just been so malleable. He hasn't had a definitive story to basically, uh, obviously a definitive story to define the character. And I guess I should appreciate Winnick for trying to do that, although it just seemed a very hackneyed attempt at it. Anyway, Luke goes on to say some notes for the show. I was amused by Kyle playing God out this time. I did it yesterday. Who does he think he has, Ozymandias? And I didn't even, I didn't even make that correlation to the end of Watchmen, where when uh, uh, Rorschach and Night Owl are talking to him and saying, you know, what are you going to do? You shouldn't be doing this. And of course, Ozymandias said, what do you think? I'm some Republic serial villain. I already did it, you know, X number of hours ago. So that was great. He says, every time, and Luke says, every time I hear you say Dr. Nephew, it makes me think of Dr. Girlfriend, which would have made this story much funnier. Yes, Dr. Girlfriend makes every story better. I love Dr. Girlfriend. I have not, <clears throat> I have not caught up on the last season, I think season five of the Venture Brothers, if it's out. And I missed a lot of season four as well, a lot where um, Brock was with Sphinx and everything. And I need to catch up on that. <clears throat> Luke says about uh, some of the ads in there, Galador was Lego's attempt to do a hero-driven action-adventure series around the same time as Bionicle, and it was a failure. It still featured assembly toys, but instead of being made of bricks and like, it was like mix-and-match body parts. Bionicle would go on to have a very successful, despite what hardcore Electro purists would try to tell you, and went through many variations through the years. Galador, on the other hand, was quickly forgotten and not exactly mourned. Okay, well, at least that explains what Galador was. This issue was sort of a one-off, but we'll be inter- But I'll be interested to get back on the Ion storyline next time around. Keep up the good work, Luke. Well, Luke, thank you for writing in, and thank you for uh, clearing up some of the things about the ads. I expected it might have had something to do with uh, Lego, but I had no idea it was just a crappy offshoot of uh, Bionicle or or something to that effect. Thanks for cleaning that up, Luke, and thanks everyone for writing in. I appreciate you guys writing to the show, and I can't wait to read your letters next time. But for right now, it's time to get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 152. Green Lantern number 152 was cover dated September 2002 and released on July 17th of 2002, with a cover price of 225 US and 375 in Canada. The title was, mysteriously, Out of Our Heads, Part 2. The writer was Judd Winnick, the penciler was Eric Battle, inker was Robert Campanella, the letterer was Kurt Hathaway, colorist was Moose Bowman, the assistant editor was Morgan Donateville, the editor was Bob Shrek, and the cover was by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. In the undisclosed location of Star Labs, Jenny Lynn Hayden, the heroine known as Jade, is sedated and restrained following her construct-fueled freakout last issue. 
Dr. Emile Brown approaches the heroes, Sentinel and Green Lantern, who brought the frightened female in, and tells them that all the tests and scans that they run on her are negative. Emile tells the duo that they will keep her sedated for now, and thanks the heroes for quelling the riots in New York City. Unfortunately, they're not completely quashed, so Sentinel and GL head back to the Big Apple to try and restrain as many rioters as they can. The two discuss their concerns over both the rioting and the state of Jenny, when Sentinel feels an odd force overcome. Sensing that something is wrong, he screams for GL to knock him out, which Cal reluctantly does with some ring construct either. But when GL goes to check on, his fall- on the fallen hero, he gets a ring field socked to the kisser for his troubles. Shrugging it off, Cal asks if it's really Alan in control, and a distorted voice replies that of course he is. He's in total control. Pretty certain that Sentinel might be pulling in Linda Blair, GL tries to go easy on the old-timer, but every construct he tries to knock him out with gets easily taken out. Meanwhile, at Star Labs, Jenny is woken up from her sedation and tells the attending scientist that she knows what's going on. It's Henry, she says. Henry is back. Back at the brawl, Sentinel is pounding on GL both physically and mentally, until Green Lantern has had about enough of his sh** and knocks him in the face with a ring construct power glove. Demanding to know just what the heck is going on, Green Lantern finally learns that Sentinel has been possessed all this time by the ultimate threat of... Brainwave Jr. Brainwave gives his backstory of being the son of the JSA All-Star Squadron villain and Dr. Savannah wannabe Brainwave, his stint in Infinity Incorporated, his relationship with Jenny, his inheritance of his father's powers, his departure from the team, his attempt to tackle the JLA, and eventual institutionalization by Alan Scott. But now he's no longer cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and with his giant brain powers, he plans on bringing retribution to the man who locked him up. But Kyle is having none of this, and says he isn't going to let fight Sentinel for Brainwave's pleasure. So be it, Brainwave says, as he commands Sentinel to pummel Green Lantern within an inch of his life. But before he can make the killing blow, Brainwave is wanged on the head with a construct tree trunk tossed by Jade. Unimpressed by the attack, Brainwave mind whammies Jade, knocking her out. Satisfied with the humiliation of the heroes, Brainwave leaves the scene, telling the battered heroes to stay the hell out of his way. Well, that was an issue. I mean, at least the story does relate to things that would have affected Jenny in the past. We haven't really seen Brave Wave Juger since the Heart of Darkness storyline, where Jenny lost her star heart powers, so there's a bit of symmetry here to have him show up when she has her powers back. The arc by Eric Battle, however, is a big letdown in the issue. The last time he did a story for Green Lantern was issue 142, where Ginny was fighting the trio of fire characters, and they turned out to be constructs of effigy, if you remember. And I wasn't as impressed with his art in that issue, and it hasn't really improved all the much to this issue. It's a decent story by Judd Winnick, hampered kind of by the subpar art, 
which makes it not really a standout of the Winnick run. But going into the book, I'll try and be a bit more specific about some of the things I do and don't like about it. Uh, the cover, again, we've got Jim Lee drawing the cover, and it's it's a decent cover, but I could have swore when I looked at this that I had seen something like this before, and I'm pretty certain I have. If you go check out uh, the cover from Uncanny X-Men number 227, I think it's from, oh, the mid-90s or wherever, Jim Lee did a cover with Wolverine and Gambit fighting on there, and it's essentially the same pose, uh, just reversed. Uh, Kyle's in the Wolverine pose, and Alan Scott's in the Gambit pose. It's not me saying that Jim Lee's not a talented artist, because he is, but this is obviously an homage or a swipe or just a redo of that, which... I guess if you like Jim Lee's art, there you go. Page one, I will comment on this page that Eric Battle's art does do service to Jenny. She looks very attractive. Sometimes Eagle Sham has had some problems in his initial uh, renderings of Jenny, where she looked really out of proportion. Battle does a good job of drawing her looking, looking physically right. You know, not too skinny. Her waist isn't too reduced. Her chest isn't too big. She looks like a very athletic female form, and I like that in the comic. Her facial expressions are really good here, and the tech around there has got this sort of cybernetic, almost it's not quite Kirby tech, but it's interesting-looking look, tech. However, the one thing that perplexes me is the title of this book. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, or at the beginning of the synopsis, the title of this was Out of Our Heads Part 2. The previous book was not titled Out of Our Heads Part 2. It was titled, let me go check. Okay, it was titled Back in the Saddle. So I went looking around to see if there was anything related to Out of Our Heads, if there was a story called Out of Our Heads anywhere. I checked the DC Wikia. I checked Mike's Amazing World of Comics. I could not find anything. So this seems like kind of a mistake on, I don't know, whether it would be Winnick's fault or whose fault, perhaps the editor, Bob Shrek, but there is no Out of Our Heads Part 1. So this is essentially the uh, Rambo 3 of the uh, Green Lantern book, if you know where, it's coming, where that's coming from. Page 2, the doctor they have here is Dr. Emil Brown, and he's a doctor at Star Labs, and I'm wondering if they were wanting to use Dr. Emil Hamilton from the Superman books, or whether they couldn't specifically use him because he is tied to the Superman books and editorial wouldn't allow him to be used. But it would have been a nice Easter egg if it was Hamilton uh, working at Star Labs. However, unfortunately, I'm not as up on the Superman books from this era, so I really wouldn't know whether or not Emil Hamilton would still be around at Star Labs during the 2000s. So maybe that's why he wasn't a character in this book. Pages 4 and 5, Winnick does a good job with the conversation between Kyle and Alan. One of the things I've really enjoyed in Winnick's run is his dialogue between characters. It does, again, feel very much of the time. It Sometimes Winnick adds too much hip dialogue, too much trendy dialogue to Alan Scott, but it does feel... It does feel realistic for the time period, so I'm willing to overlook that. I also like the fact here that Kyle's admitting sort of that his glibness or his acts of being nonchalant are essentially a defense mechanism to keep him from worrying about Jenny, which I like that they discuss that in the book. It shows that Kyle 
is a human character and that he's truly concerned for what's going on with uh, Jenny in the book. Page six, you do not know how hard it was for me. Not to do an LO Cool J reference here, as here in this uh, fourth panel here, we see Alan concentrating really heavily about trying to overcome what's happening to him, and he tells Kyle, you better knock me out. And when I hear that, there's there's only one thing I can hear. Ah, LL Cool J. You know, I, I just as an aside, I wouldn't see a problem if they decided to choose LL Cool J as uh, a stand-in in the Green Lantern movie for John Stewart. I think he'd make a good John Stewart. Maybe that's something you know. And he'd be, I think he'd be of the age and maturity to to play the character. I know there's, uh, I know Emily said she wanted the person from Leverage to possibly play John Stewart, so. It'd be an interesting character, and yeah, but that, that's just speculation. Who knows what's going to be in the next Greenlander movie? Of course, when Kyle does try and knock Alan out, he does it with ring construct ether, which I guess is the thing because comics. Sure, why not? Plus, on this page, this third panel of Alan just screaming at Kyle, telling him to do it, is just... It's all kinds of wonky art. Uh, Alan looks off. His fists look like wads of dough. It's just all kind of messed up. Uh, Battle's art ebbs and flows throughout the story. There's some good points and some bad points, and this is one of the one of the bad points here. In fact, you know, I don't have any notes until page 13, the panel 4, where we see Guy Gardner showing up in the book. And that's really, oh, oh, wait. That's not Guy Gardner at all. That's Brainwave Jr. with a ridiculous Guy Gardner haircut. In fact, you know, the facial expression looks so much like Guy Gardner from this time, with the short, sort of spiky buzz cut and the the furrowed brow and the, the larger ear, you know... It's just not right. Page 14. Uh, for more information about what's going to be going on on these pages, especially specifically dealing with Brainwave Jr. and the members of Infinity Incorporated, uh, go check out Tales of the Justice Society of America over at the Two True Freaks podcast network. They're going to be covering, I think throughout the rest of the year of 2015, they're going to be covering Crisis on Infinite Earths for one show. Then they're going to be covering the... Uh, they're going to be covering the JSA and, uh, or I'm not sorry, JSA, the All-Star Squadron, as well as Infinity Incorporated in another show. And then they're also going to be doing some of the Crisis offshoots, some of the Crisis tie-in books. But their first episode of Crisis on Infinite Earths came out, and it was amazing. It's They were both so psyched to do the show, both Michael and Scott, and their enthusiasm just showed through amazingly. It was a great show to listen to, and I cannot wait to hear the next episode. Listen to the tales of the Justice Society of America if you're not. Listen to the crisis coverage. 
it's going to be epic. And I, I guess I'm doing so much plugging for their show because I really don't have anything to say about this this comic. I mean, there's a big fight scene at the end. Brainwave tells what he's going on. Uh, the only real note I have is throughout the last part of the book, the onomatopoeia, which I don't comment on enough, is really poorly put in. It's very unoriginal, and in some of the ones, especially here on page 21, the second panel, it looks like it was just drawn in with a sharpie at the very end of the story. It's it's just not very good. I'm sorry this wasn't the best issue. Well, I, I really can't complain about it because I had nothing to do about it. But I'm sorry you're having to endure an issue that is significantly worse than what we've come along. It's not necessarily... Something like, oh, issue 37 of Green Lantern, but it's definitely not one of the strong points of Judd Winnick's run. Maybe there'll be some interesting ads in the book that'll make up for the lack of quality in the story. And it's not looking promising at the beginning, as uh, the first one is an advertisement for corn nuts with the crazy ear of corn dressed up like a creepy clown making balloon animals. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for infiltrating my nightmares, corn nuts. You're, you're special. Then the next ad we have is one of those ads that runs... It's one of those widescreen ads that runs the, the, the height of the page, so it's tilted on the side. And you've got one of those old, caddy, convertible cars that people have modified to jump up and down, and someone who was doing double dutch with it. it. It makes no sense. It's an advertisement for Fruitopia, because I guess... Fruitopia is the uh, beverage that uh, people who have cars that jump love to drink. Sure. The next ad is uh, an ad for the movie Reign of Fire, which I remember being a pretty good movie. Uh, start Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey in a very beefy role for McConaughey. Uh, you know, this is one of the ones I'm thinking it was. I'm thinking it was McConaughey. Let me let me check IMDb to make sure because the the print on the bottom of this ad is so insignificant I can't read it. One second. Yes, quick quick check of IMDb says it was it was Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale in there. In fact, there's a couple of Star Trek alumni, uh, Alexander Siddig and Alan. Let's see, Alice Krieg, uh, Siddig who played Doctor Bashir in Deep Space Nine, and Alice Krieg who played the Borg Queen in uh, Star Trek: First Contact. So that's that's kind of interesting. It was a fun movie. One of the great things about the movie was the retelling of the the uh, Darth Vader Luke Skywalker fight scene in Empire Strikes Back, and how they adapted that as a sort of dramatic play for these kids. And it it was a fun movie. I remember it being directed, I think, by Rod Bowman, who was one of the guys behind the X Files. It was a good movie. I'd, I'd recommend seeking it out. In the middle of the book, we get another two-page ad for Tang in the pouch with the skateboarding orangutan. And I guess you can get drawn into a comic book sweepstakes from DC and Tang. So doesn't say what comic book you could get drawn into, but it's a DC comic, so there you go. You get the free Twix peanut butter ad with a very skinny beret-wearing girl holding up the coupon for you. Then you get a house ad for the Devin Grayson, Rick Leonardi, Jesse Delperdang version of Nightwing. Now, I know Tom Panarese has said that he enjoyed, at least to some extent, the Devin Grayson version of Nightwing. Thomas DJ, however, 
is not a fan of Devin Grayson. So I unfortunately haven't read this. The artwork by Leonardi looks good. I was, I've been impressed with Leonardi's stuff, especially on the Spider-Man 29 books, as well as the uh, Green Lantern versus Alien books that came out and we covered a while back. So uh, again, this might be something I'd be interested in collecting, but right now I've got too much on my plate and uh, Nightwing, that's cool. After that, we get an ad for call 1-800-CALL-ATT for your chance to win a trip to Woodward. I have no idea. Oh, it's, oh, I guess it's to the X Games, and Carrot Top and Dave Mira are advertising for it. So, yeah, if Carrot Top and Dave Mira aren't, uh, aren't the people to get you excited about the X Games, then I don't know who would be. That's me staring blankly into space for, for you who can't visually see this. The next page is an ad for Bondi's, I guess, mobile suit Gundam. I can't tell if they're, they're model sets or action figures, but they've got different levels, levels one through five, and I guess it's the different types of Gundam suits. This is something that anime freaks that uh, Gene and Bill would probably have to you know, school me on because I never watched any of the mobile suit Gundam stuff. Then another ad for the Extreme Summer Sweepstakes with DC and Mad and the Lillard Company with Tobacco is Wacko if you're a teen with the Blu-ray player and all the DC movies. Covered that before. And then an ad for one of my favorite yet now defunct uh, video, well, video and music players, Winamped, and, or not Winamped, Winamp. And uh, for some reason it's uh, associated with Mad Magazine and you've got a version of Alfred E. Newman sort of mimicking Eminem from the uh, My Name Is video, I guess, as Alfred E. Newman is uncomfortably grabbing his crotch. Yeah, that's that's disturbing right there. Then after that, you get a stylized advertisement for Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum, and it has a uh, sort of British explorer with a pith helmet sunk almost up to his neck in quicksand, and instead of reaching for the rope, he's reaching for the the sticks of juicy fruit gum, saying that he would rather die chewing gum than be saved. The art style is a, a very akin to that sort of art style that they had during the late 90s with the Coca-Cola graphics, very stylized, cartoony thing. Eh, never a fan of juicy fruit. After that, we get a two-page sp- uh, I'm sorry, a two-page ad for Space Race, which I guess is Looney Tunes Space Race, which I guess is essentially Mario Kart with the Looney Tunes characters. And you've got Bugs Bunny riding on a carrot and Daffy Duck riding on a very phallic rocket. You know, it's for the PlayStation 2. The, the graphics look amusing, but I can't see this as being anything other than essentially a Mario Kart ripoff. A few more pages in, you get the advertisement for the video-on-demand and pay-for-view version of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, as well as Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Well, no, it has a... the pay-per-view has a preview of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which would be coming out pretty soon. Uh, I was... Uh, the first Harry Potter movie actually kind of turned me off, but eventually the other movies got me back into the character, and... I haven't seen all of them, but the ones that I've seen, I've at least enjoyed specifically more than the first one. The back inside cover is that ad for Right Guard Extreme, which has the power stripe and has the 
the very urban wannabe Dr. Dre characters advertising it, I don't get it. I guess I guess rappers need uh, power stripe deodorant. I don't know what that says. The back outside cover is uh, no less um, uncomfortable either as you have, I guess, Zhang Li or what's who is this? The prince so small. Zhang Ji. I guess she's one of the uh, actresses from the uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon movie. And she's uh, karate chopping a uh, vase of milk. And the milk is exploding over there. And she says it has nine essential nutrients in every easy-to-open bottle. And I guess it's easy to open because you cut it in half with your hand in a Asian karate chop. Yeah, let's hear it for stereotypes, everyone. It's an advertisement for milk, is the gut milk advertisement. So, yeah. Wow, that was uncomfortable. Hopefully next time around it won't be so uncomfortable, as next time around we'll be getting into issue 153 of Green Lantern, where Kyle goes back to his high school reunion. Oh, well, maybe it will be uncomfortable. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at a story called Green Lantern Evil's Might, which I need to be getting on reading because it's, uh, well, it's one of those prestige format books, and it'll probably take me a little longer to do no idea what it's about and i think it has something to do with the sort of 1930s gangster aesthetic maybe i'm completely wrong but regardless we'll be back in seven days with another episode of just one of the guys i hope you'll be back as well until then everyone have a good week you've been listening to just one of the guys a green lantern podcast hosted by yours truly sean inkle all images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you, you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show was Fastball, and their song, Out of My Head, from the album All the Pain Money Can Buy. If you'd like to buy this album buy the song, or buy any myriad number of fastball songs. Well, myriad number is probably an overstatement, as they're really not that huge a band. I would suggest you go to the best place on the internet to buy music, and that would be Amazon.com. I'd also suggest you go through the link at 2 
Every time you go to the webpage, twotruefreaks.com, and click on the Amazon link in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be directed to Amazon.com, where you can buy music like The Way, Fire Escape, or Out of My Head from Fastball, or music from any other artists that you like. Plus, you can buy DVDs, movies, electronics, games, whatever the modern, internet-loving freak would want. And all for ridiculously low prices. Plus, anytime you use the link at twotruefreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price gets shunted back to the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it really helps the two true freaks out. So anytime you're thinking about doing some shopping at Amazon.com, please make sure you use the link at two